This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. Our focus for this entire month and our Tuesday episodes has been AI team success. This is our third of four episodes on that topic, and we speak today with none other than Scott Nowson of PwC. Scott heads up AI in the Middle East for PwC, and in addition to having a PhD in natural language processing, Scott has himself worked in many environments. As a technical person, he obviously now works within PwC, which is not necessarily an AI native firm. They're leveling up their game, but they are a a legacy enterprise. He's worked with many legacy enterprises. When you're a consultant at his level, you get to talk to government agencies and big organizations, etc. And he also has a background in academia, which is a space where many very technical folks on the PhD side of things end up wanting to stay, sometimes despite the better pay in the private sector because they find it more interesting. Scott talks about a number of factors in this particular episode when it comes to building a successful AI team, but he speaks from the perspective of somebody who has these very high-level technical skills and who has been brought in to a company to sort of translate that now to a business audience. So he's kind of bridged that gap himself. Towards the end of this episode, Scott talks about sort of the inflows and the outflows from a successful data science team. What are we bringing to them that makes them feel fulfilled and engaged and not just busy, but doing something productive? And how can we show how things are leaving them, how things are actually being implemented and deployed in a way that's going to keep a team motivated and also give them the feedback that they need to improve? Those inflows and outflows were, for me, the big takeaway for this episode. And by the very end of the episode, I hope they'll be the takeaway for you as well. Without further ado, this is Scott Nowson with us again here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Scott, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for inviting me again. We are touching in on a topic that applies to you directly as a PhD in NLP, which is around building successful AI teams. And today's interview with you is going to focus a little bit more on finding these folks, hiring these folks, and then also on retaining. I want to start with hiring. So PwC obviously got you, and then there's other folks that they're they're building a talented AI team over there. You also work with a lot of clients. You're seeing some of them who are actually doing okay in terms of really you know building out a, a genuine cohort mm-hmm. of people who can really lead enterprise AI. For the companies that aren't Amazon, they aren't Google, they don't have unlimited money, they don't have an automatic magnetism for AI, what are you seeing them do well to actually get some of that top talent? The starting point for me is probably is is your first person and it could be the first person you hire or it could be one of the existing leadership of having a passion of vision for what they want to do and also having some sort of credibility so that could be your chief digital officer your chief innovation your cto something like that someone who can start getting those people on with that vision okay this is what we're going to do with ai Rather than hiring them just for the sake of it, you're like, I, I need to know what's going to be appealing about my job. I, I need to know what the problems I'm going to solve are. So that first person is really going to be key to set that vision and then and then trickle it down. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The starting at the top is actually somewhat of a common theme across some of our interviews here. Do you believe that this really should be somebody who ideally has a strong academic background in this space? Do you believe that this should be somebody who has maybe not an academic background, but some hands-on experience with AI? 
in the enterprise? What are the prereqs? Because what you're addressing is what we sometimes refer to as kind of executive AI fluency. Somebody who gets the use cases, they get the technology broadly, and they also have a vision for how it connects to where the company's going. And that is not where most executives are, right? So we're talking about somebody who's a very particular kind of person. What sorts of backgrounds do you often see with these kind of anchor people that are going to then build out this team? Well, I think the degree of AI fluency, the use cases, having some sense, because that's part of the vision, I think, to know at least some idea of what the use cases are in at least your industry. Technical fluency in AI, academic fluency, not necessarily, not necessarily at all, because Mm. so long as you can acknowledge that, you know, you could be the chief CRM implementation officer, and you know the CRM, the customer relationship tool, the, a Salesforce or an SAP, uh, Microsoft Dynamics, you know it has some AI capabilities in it. You don't know what they are, but you understand their value. You know you want to use them. So I think the fluency on, on use cases that it can show return is great because you've probably already set that out internally anyway. I would hope to get the business case. But yep. for those first few people, the technical fluency, I don't think that necessarily has to be there. Okay, got it. So it isn't necessarily somebody out of academia. Do you often see this anchor person being bubbled up from within the organization? Do you often see them need to be sort of pulled in from the outside? I would imagine there's some serious pros and cons to both, just thinking about it myself. I mean, I certainly haven't made those kind of hires myself. But how do you frame that? Or what have have you, I guess, seen for companies where this has worked out? So I think... I think you're absolutely right. It's a bit of both. There's always going to be someone who's sponsoring it from the inside. So I was found by our chief digital officer, for example. He was very passionate about the use of AI. And then I come on and now I'm the anchor. So then I'm talking at the next level down, but he's still there very passionate about it. So you're right. It's absolutely both. I think it can be a little hard to find the right secondary anchor if you don't have that credibility in the primary, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. It's someone in leadership needs to get bought in, but the the internal anchor is what's going to get you that external anchor, even if they then take precedence. Got it. So somebody who has a clear vision, who knows where this stuff is going, probably they would be able to actually put some fire into recruiting conversations and make it something that isn't boring, make it something compelling. Now it, it does come down to, in terms of our conversation, how we're going to make our company appealing, how we're actually going to get people on board. Again, you know, there's plenty of people in grad school, you know, at Georgia Tech, at Stanford, at MIT, who are just sort of knowing like, oh yeah, it's going to be cool. I'll work at Amazon. Like my friends are going to think I'm cool and I'll make a lot of money. And, and they already know that, right? But they might not know that about some big manufacturing company. They might not know that about some bank that was founded 150 years ago and is based in Belgium. They might not know that about, you know, whatever other company, right? Most enterprises are not the superscalers. What are they doing to be able to engage talent and actually bring them on even if they don't have that cloud? I I know this is a real challenge. So I'd love your perspective on on what you're seeing potentially work here. It is a challenge. You're right. Because, you know, then there's a perception that all the MIT guys have gone to Amazon and and who who are you going to get left over to overgeneralize a bit. But the biggest thing is 
knowing the problems you want to solve, having interesting problems, because people will come out of academia or move roles in industry because they want to solve an interesting problem. They want to make a difference. So knowing what you want to do with something, with AI, either if you're like, we have a lot of review data, we have a lot of contracts, we know it's an NLP problem. You know, having some specifics around that, you can get someone excited about the problem, about the prospects. And that, I think, is is really big. And, and knowing then what sorts of roles you're going to want is really supplement to that. It's not just hiring the data scientists. You need to hire the, the learners, have a roadmap, a data engineer, you know, an ML ops person. There's an increasing number of roles now in AI. But ultimately, People want to come on with a sense that they will be able to impact the business. Yeah, and we'll get into this in retention. Sometimes that doesn't exactly work out in practice, and and then you know yeah. we've we've got to be able to sort of pivot from there. I I remember talking to one of the AI leaders at I think it was Experience something like five years ago in Atlanta, and remembering some horror story about hiring a bunch of PhDs and having them sit in a room and do nothing for six months. And we'll get a little bit into retention in yeah. a little bit. But in terms of conveying sort of where and how you'll be able to impact the business, there are so many areas of the business, I imagine, right? So if we're bringing somebody on, I'm just using banking as an example, we might have use cases in customer service and fraud and marketing and whatever. Are we sort of, do we want to kind of paint the landscape of here's all the cool areas where we're going to need data scientists? Do we want to talk about the early focus areas? Here's what you're probably going to work on in your first couple of years. What's the best way to convey like, hey, there is impact to be had here or or at least potential impact because many companies making these hires, they really haven't done much with AI. So they, they don't have much no. of a track record to brag about, but they do have to paint a compelling vision and show that your job will matter and you'll be able to grow and affect the world like you're saying. How do we approach that? You're right. That, that's around maturity. You know, if you're not that mature, you haven't prioritized your use cases yet. You may not even have a good sense of them all, but just describing your business landscape, what it is that you do, that you manufacture pencils. They're the world's leading pencils. But yeah. <laughs> you really believe that your processes are getting out of date and that you know you want to keep up this reputation of the best pencils. So we know we need to use AI to automate some of our manufacturing processes. We want you to explore that. And so putting it in the context of your business, even if you're not quite sure where that goes, you know, that still is going to sell it a little bit better than, you know, unfortunately, the the boring AI side of it, which is often where you might recommend a client start, you know, it's not necessarily going to attract people to go, we need you to process our invoices for us so we can be more effective. It's realistic and it's great, but setting it in the context of the business and making pencils, that's the way to go. Yeah. Okay. So connect to the bigger picture values yeah. because you're right i mean some of the use cases are going to be somewhat boring right it is what yeah. it is i mean sometimes you're going to get brought on and it's not going to be oh we're going to crack flying cars it's like well no sometimes you get brought on and we're going to spend a lot of the time like cleaning and figuring out how to handle legal contract data mm -hmm. and then figuring out if there's regulatory or financial risk buried in those contracts and it's going to be years and that's the whole world you're going to operate in. But to your point, can we connect that to the bigger the bigger program? And and again, to your point as well, 
can we have somebody who's leading the charge on AI who can build confidence in the fact that this is going to be real? We're committed to this. We know how it's going to affect the business. You'll make a difference here, etc. When it comes to attracting folks, is part of the appeal something along the lines of, hey, you know, because many companies, they're, they're kind of early in their, their hiring of a real data science team. Do they need to use that to their advantage? In other words, hey, you'll have a bigger impact here because you're going to be part of really kind of the leading team. You know, I, I think about, I, I forget exactly how long ago it was, you know, certainly more than two years ago, maybe it was more than three years ago when you joined PwC. There obviously are other, maybe more pure tech, you know, mature AI firms. PwC is a great firm though. You ended up joining them. Was part of the appeal that you could maybe steer things more with a company that wasn't quite as like super developed in terms of an AI team? Do you think that's something other enterprises could do? I'd love your perspective on that. A thousand percent. I mean, that's ah, exactly, okay. that okay. was exactly for me, not just the firm, <laughs> but the market. This market in the, in the Middle East region is less mature than the European market. So there was yes. an opportunity to shape it. And that could apply to a firm to an industry, to to a sector, anything like that, to get in from the ground up, to be able to shape things and have an influence, I think is incredibly appealing. You know, again, mm. it comes to that solving interesting problems. We may not even know what the problems are. You will come in and help us figure out what the best problems are. I mean, I I think that's really appealing. Yeah. So play that up. If it's a new market, a new business area, you know, a new geography in your case as well, or a company that's just building, you know, its AI team, maybe find the people who can be excited and actually see it as an upside that you will have real influence and direction here. 100%. Yeah. It's, it's okay. you know, cool. we were, we have a lot of a capability, not so much in our region. So there's that cross sector of, I will also have a network to tap into. So maybe, you know, if, if you're a company on your own, maybe it's like, we're going to need you to come in and learn the best practices in our sector too. connect with other folks. So almost creating that network. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So I, I think your, your enthusiasm with that response feels like a strong point of resonance for, for the audience. Maybe, maybe a bit of a writer downer there. We'll talk lastly around sort of the, the retention idea, you know, in terms of what keeps people around. So we're going to attract them by having a strong champion who can really paint a compelling vision. We're going to frame what we're doing in line with the overall vision for the company and where it really fits in and has value as opposed to just a process off on the side. We're going to showcase the areas of business impact you'll be able to have. These are some some big writer downers. Once we got them on board, what does it look like to keep them? Because if you're a senior data scientist, you've got a PhD in, in computer science or, or NLP or computer vision. You know, recruiters are going to be tapping you on the shoulder all the time. What does retention look like in terms of what's most important? If you could highlight maybe one or two bullets that for you really matter the most. I think the way you summed up the, the path in, I think, is a really good way of keeping going with retention. Keeping that connectivity to the business is crucially important. On the one hand, having the team in place so the data scientists don't become isolated. Exactly the example you get of people being left in a room. They need yeah. to feel part of the business. They need to understand the business. Even if that's someone sitting in between as part of the team, part of the business who can communicate because it's that keeping the interesting problems to solve. Even if they become the boring AI ones, they're problems that are relevant and solved. 
And that's what's coming into the team to keep you interested. What will motivate you then is that you are still making an impact, that you are having, you are able to execute your work. So one, do you actually get access to the data or is that just locked up somewhere? You know, well, we hired you and we weren't able to get you any data. And then the second part is once I've built the solution, I need to see it deployed. I, I can't see it shelved. You hear horror stories of brilliant minds creating great algorithms. The company has no way to scale them or doesn't understand the value. So actually putting this into production, actually letting people see, well, look, I made that difference. I saved even like a half a percent of, of some savings somewhere. I now know I made a difference and I matter to the company. So making that salient, and we sometimes talk about the idea of connective tissue in two ways. So if we hire a data science team and they sit somewhere, to use my rough example from before, we've got to have kind of business leadership, preferably people who are steering strategy and projects who are fluent enough to actually communicate with and have some synergy with those data science folks. They have to be fluent enough to at least know what to hand them, right? We're like, we, we have mm-hmm. to be able to give them projects that matter instead yeah. of say, well, you, yeah. you have a PhD from Carnegie Mellon. Why don't you figure out how to save us $5 million? It's like, well, I didn't exactly learn about manufacturing electronics you know, at Carnegie Mellon. I, I learned about machine learning. You know, I need to know what problem to work on. So, so we need business leadership that's fluent enough to communicate in with the data science team. And then we also need... IT folks and people who are the gatekeepers to data, the gatekeepers to infrastructure, who are actually willing to play ball, who don't see this as intimidating and they want to close off to data science, they understand where the synergies are and they they can enable them and they can actually make sure things get deployed. We've got to have both of those bits of connective tissue. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? That's often the way that we'll explain it, but I'd, I'd love any detail you have on, on how that works in practice. I think the 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 only complication comes when If you're looking at a much larger enterprise, you can often have issues of who owns these functions. So the the data function, the IT function, the AI function, the innovation function, there needs to at least be some sort of relationship in the business with them. They don't have to be with the same owners. There's the business people, the IT people, but there needs to be a good relationship between them because politics can often get in the way of that. But I think overall, that's that's the way to go. The the other dimension is is really that, that, that Carnegie Mellon PhD who doesn't know anything about deal manufacturing. Exactly. They can learn (laughs) about the business with the support of the people around them somewhat quicker, at least to start, than someone in the steel industry can learn all the skills that this PhD comes with. And so that, that will often slow people down in recruiting, that they will think they need someone with experience in their industry. Yeah. And it would be great... But yeah, you're it's, it's one wonderful standard, to find a unicorn. Wonderful to find a unicorn. Sure. Exactly. You, you, yeah. There's so few of them out there, but and you're gonna have to go straight to your competitor if that's what it is, and you know you're gonna be stealing and and yeah, you can learn. It's a balance of learning. Once those few people are in, they can upskill other. Maybe you want to transfer someone from IT and learn. Start learning data skills. Someone who's been in your business a bit longer, but lowering the barrier to the business is faster than you know lowering the barrier on the, the actual analytical and engineering skills. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So an important takeaway there. So, and it sounds like maybe in terms of a final note to leave on, it sounds like having a strong onboarding process for our data scientists, hey, we're, 
we're a steel manufacturing company. We're going to find data scientists. They're not all going to be steel manufacturing experts. What is the way that onboarding can really get them close to the problem, familiar with the problem? Because like you said, we might be able to get them up to speed in X number of months, a relatively short number of months. We're not going to be able to build an AI PhD from scratch in three months. So it feels to me like a smart company, and I don't know if you would advocate for this, would have a get up to speed onboarding for data scientists so that we can get them the fluency to talk to that connective tissue and to to communicate about business value. This is what I think we are seeing in some of our most digitally literate clients. They realize that as part of their data AI strategy of part of growing this capability, they need to upskill people on their business and it has to be part of the onboarding that it isn't for almost anyone else they hire. Yeah. Well, that's that's a take home as well. So we've got some good points here for the folks that are tuned in around finding talent, about what it takes to actually have somebody who can lead these talent initiatives, what that person needs. And now we've got some good closing notes on onboarding and on actual retention, being able to make that business value salient. And obviously, we need to make the business value understandable first. And so what you're advocating here for curricula, I really do hope that more enterprises get into. Scott, one of the many reasons I brought you back on, in addition to really enjoying our chats from years ago, is that you are one of these smart academic folks who now works for a company. And so your opinions are extremely salient here. I've really valued your takes. Thank you so much for being able to join us again. You humble me. Thank you so much, Dan. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Scott for being able to join us again on this episode. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. I hope that this third episode in our four-part series on building successful AI teams has been helpful for you. Many of you I know are working within legacy enterprises. Some of you are consultants working with big organizations. In either case, it's a relevant topic. And we're going to be capping it off next Tuesday with a bit of CTO perspective. So we're not going to be talking technical. We're going to be speaking from the vantage point of somebody technical. How do we best need to merge the technical and non-technical teams to actually build things that get deployed, to really build things that, that turn into value? And one of the biggest takeaways from this last episode next Tuesday is going to be how to hire for the right traits and qualities when you're maybe not necessarily an AI native company, but now you need to hire an AI team. What should you be looking for for recruiting and hiring? Some excellent perspective in the week ahead. I hope to have you with us here on the show, and I appreciate, again, you being with us listening in on this episode. So that's all for this one. I look forward to catching you in the coming week here on the AI and Business Podcast. <laughs>